The following message is from the 2013 IBCD Summer Institute, Churches Equipped to Care. One of the blessings of having been the former director and them inviting me back is uh, they indulge an old man, you know, <laughs> and they'll say, well, what would you like to talk on, you know, and so uh, obviously I'm not the only person that might be interested in this subject, but uh, so let's pray and uh, ask the Lord to bless us, and you have the notes in front of you, and we'll go through those, and I'd like to end up early enough that you could ask questions, because I think this really is an area of great importance, and we ought to be wrestling with it. Father in heaven, we come to you, and uh, as Calvin says in that first book of the Institutes, uh, how, how do we figure things out? If we don't know who we are, we won't be able to figure out who you are, uh, because we don't know our sin. On the other hand, if we don't know who you are because you're the original and we're the image bearer, then we can't figure that out. And He goes around and around and finally says we have to start with who you are if we're ever going to figure out who we are. And as Lord, we consider who man is, Lord, which is really the, the core of what we're trying to do in counseling, that you'll bless us together. <clears throat> in Christ's name, amen. amen. Okay. So you have the notes in front of you, <clears throat> and uh, can we get you in here? I think so. Let me get you, uh, no trash talk here, we'll move the trash can, get you in, okay? And uh, if you want to move over here, we can maybe move one of the chairs out, make more room for him. So, there you go. Okay. Here's, uh, here's our subject, okay? Who is man? Man as man, okay? I'm old-fashioned. You know, language used to be man included woman, you know, but anymore because of politically correctness, we can't say he, she, it, you know, whatever. Uh, who's man? How would you define a human being, okay? What, if anything, makes us different than snail darters? We live in an interesting culture, interesting time. People will lay down their lives, literally almost. Uh, I don't know, I don't watch a lot of television, but every once in a while I'll turn on and there's what they call the whale wars. Have you ever seen that? Okay. They chase the Japanese whalers down and try to get in the way because they don't want whales to be killed. Okay and yet uh, the same culture would abort babies and can't figure out uh, what's the difference? What makes uh, really us different than the snail darter or the whale? And uh, if the green people are right, uh, we just take up too much uh, space and breathe too much carbon dioxide back in the, you know, and what's, you know, our carbon footprint, okay? All those things, we can smile at them, but they're very serious, okay? Uh, with the recent uh, Supreme Court decision, uh, there are some very unique things happening in our culture. You are, and I are living and watching right now Western civilization die, okay? And we're in a battle, and it's not the, uh, it's not the conservatives versus the liberals, because the conservatives are really nothing but conservative liberals. Okay, because it's really biblical Christianity against everything else. Okay? So your counseling theory and practice really depend on this. 
at the bottom line, it's this simple, and it comes up in the NANC exam. What is your counseling theory and practice? What does the anthropology have to do with your counseling theory and practice? Well, it dictates it, right? Whoever man is, what's wrong with them, and how to fix it, okay? So, and you'll say, because you're here at a Christian conference, and you'll be right. Well, skip, that's stupid. Man is the image of God, and you would be correct. Okay? But even inspired writers like David sat there, probably who knows if he was out under the stars with the sheep or whatever. He said, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is the son of man that you even take notice of him? See, and there David wrestles through. Okay, uh, Let's look at that real quickly. I mean, that's... Uh, actually, this is a lecture from the, the D-Min course, and so, you know, I'm giving you my best shot, at least to start here, uh, to, to, to wrestle with this. Now, let me say this as an aside. Why is this important? Uh, I'm trying to get you primed to think that. I honestly believe it may be out there, and uh, I've slowed down in my reading because I'm so busy. I, I don't read as much as I should. Uh, but I don't think there's a good biblical anthropology out there. A one volume that you can hand to somebody and say, okay, this is who man is, this is what's wrong and how you fix him. Well, it is the Bible, okay, obviously that. But, but uh, an anthropology, because in all the differences between the integrationist and biblical counseling, and even... The, the nuances within the biblical counseling movement really come down to this. People talk past each other. Why? Because I don't think they have a clear definition of man, a clear definition of what's sin and what's wrong, and how Christ's redemption changes that. I, I honestly believe that. And you may say, gee, that's kind of weird. I think it is. I'm not sure there's been a good systematic theology written since the 1800s, and I disagree with Delich, who was the Old Testament commentator. He wrote Biblical Psychology. He was a trichotomist, and he was trying to explain why he thinks man has three basic parts, and then he went through scriptures, and there's been others. There was another guy named Rus, a Reformed guy. I can't read Latin, so I can't read it, and no one's translated. Someone translated the introduction. He supposedly went through with all the biblical passage on who man is. You know, uh, lave for heart, cardia in the Greek. You know, go through all the terms and come out and say, okay, this is what the Bible says about man. And just think about that. And we all really jump in and start tinkering with human beings when we haven't really go, who is this really sitting across from me? You've all probably experienced this if you've been married. <laughs> you know that's your husband or wife but you forgot to ask, well, who are they really, okay? And, and they don't like being tinkered with any more than you do because they go, you don't understand me. Okay, so all that's there. You're correct, but what does, what does the image of God mean? And this is by no means a set thing across people who call themselves Christian. There's different views of what the image of God is. Well, let's read Psalm 8. That's kind of our background. For the choir master, obviously meant to be sung in public worship, according to the uh, Giddith, 
a psalm of David. O Yahweh, or Jehovah, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Right up front, God uses the weak, insignificant to kind of go, to give the divine raspberries, you know, to, uh, to everybody else, like Psalm 2. Yahweh sits in the heavens and laughs. He kind of goes, you've got to be king. You and what army? I've set my king on Zion's hill and you don't like him. Well, guess what? You better kiss him. You know, uh, and do almonds to him because if he gets upset, you're toast. That's that's the sum of it. Okay. Um, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Hebrew parallelism, same thing with slight nuance. The son of man is man in relationship as a covenant servant of God. Yeah. Yet you have made him what? A little lower than Elohim. Okay? I think it really is little lower than God. Everyone thinks it's a little lower than the heavenly beings. Guess what? Heavenly beings are not the image bearers of God. The cherry on top of the Sunday of creation is people not angels. Now, I know they're bigger, stronger, but so are elephants. But I don't think anybody's <laughs> going to think elephants are more significant than human beings. Okay? So, a little lower than Elohim or God, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, including the angels. Now, again, you get to Hebrews and you go, something's messed up, right? Everything's put under our feet, you know, and we can't even get our dog to obey us, you know, and, you know, something's wrong with creation. Well, we know what that is. So, we've put all things under his feet, all sheep, oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, if you have a, a, an automatic car stepping on the gas and the brake at the same time, creates a tension, and that's the tension here. He's sitting there going, <clears throat> compared to this vast universe that God has put into place, I look pretty minuscule and small and insignificant, but I'm the son of man. I'm a servant of God. So that's who man is. Okay, so let's go through real quickly. Let's look at the scriptures, try to come to some conclusion. We look at the Old Testament, then the New and then some uh, historical thinking on the issue, and then draw some preliminary conclusions. So, so this is this is not so much a sermon. This is really, as uh, uh, Bob Kellum said, it's it's really teaching, thinking through with me. Okay, what is? Let's turn to Genesis 1, 26, 27. You all know that, and that's the that's the passage. Notice when Jesus gets in controversy about marriage, divorce, remarriage. Where does he go? Back to the beginning. Okay. Because this is a paradigm. And notice, interestingly, this is thrown in for free. Paul does this, right? 
when he talks about male-female relationship, he goes, okay, let's go back. Who was created first? Who sinned first? You know, so creation, fall, and redemption are not, and this is uh, coming up in my circles, this is not an insignificant thing. Either Genesis 1 through 11 is real history, or it's myth. And if it's myth, you've mythed the point. <laughs> and the point is, God is at the center of the universe, okay? And, and uh, he actually, there was a real Adam, a real Eve, you could see it, and there was a real snake. That's one I want to ask them and ask the Lord when I get to heaven. What is this, Narnia? With the Chronicles? And what? Why are you talking to a snake? I mean, hello. Okay, why are you talking to a snake? Anyway, okay, it's all real. Now, we, real, we read in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image. Some people think this is the angels. Eh, wrong, okay? If the angels are not in the image of God, then how in the world can we be made in the image of angels as well as God? He's, it's really uh, kind of a, an implication. It's God speaking within himself. It's another one I want to ask. What language does the Trinity speak? Right? I'll probably never know. The Father, Son, and Spirit speak in all eternity. Some people argue it probably was Hebrew, but I don't know. It may well be. Okay, what's the original language? Okay. But God says, let us make man in our image, yeah, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Okay, so, so there is... The picture, okay? Now, there's a mirror back there, and I see in that mirror a handsome chap. Not so young anymore, but a handsome chap back there, Philip George, with a green. But that's really not Philip, is it? What is it? It's an image, right? There's a difference between the image and the original, right? Okay, so if you go home tonight, ladies, and your husband says, oh, you're so beautiful. It's, it's the mirror, right? You know, you're there. Oh, honey. <laughs> and starts kissing the mirror. You're going to look at him and kind of go, oh, hello. <laughs> like, uh, would you like to wake up? I'm here, okay? There's a difference, see? But it's important. The image is important. You come to my house, and if you spit on a wife of my picture, uh, a picture of my wife, you haven't spit on my wife, but you sort of have, haven't you? Okay. You see the difference. So this is, again, throw this in for free. That's one of the reasons why I think Satan pushes so hard on abortion. Because when you kill a human being, you're obliterating the image of God. And it's a way of Satan thumbing his nose and flipping off God. When he can't kill God, he goes after the image bearer. Okay. So so we know that that's, that's what it is, okay? So... Uh, the image, uh, there's the Hebrew, salem, which comes from the Hebrew verb salam, which means to cut off, cut out, or carve. So, so when we make an image, it's almost like God's making a bas-relief. He's, 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 man is like a three-dimensional reflection 
of who God is. God speaks to himself. He creates man in unique terms. And God speaks of man collectively as well as man and woman individually. Now, in the exegesis of this, some people try to make a distinction between image and likeness. And that's true. In Hebrew parallelism, it can be an extension of, not an exact representation. But I think the best understanding, it's a parallel tone, okay? Demuth is likeness or resemblance. LXX is uh, 70 or the uh, Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew Old Testament, katha homohosin, okay? Dema is the Hebrew verb to mean to be like or to resemble. So I think it's a parallel term. So we have a simple concept. You look at man, you see a reflection of God. Okay? And people will say, was that physical? Man reflects the very character of God. This is why, again, no matter how profoundly limited a child is that's born, whether it only has a partial brain stem or whatever, or, or physical limitations, that's still the image bearer of God. And as I point out, those of us who are not challenged as they are, you don't do such a good job of reflecting God either at times, okay? So we're all damaged images, okay, physically, spiritually. Okay, so Genesis 5, pick that up, and uh, let's read that, Genesis 5, 3, because the language is really intriguing there. Uh, let me get the context. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Remember, that's the structure of the book of, uh, of uh, uh, Genesis. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. See, now there's the same language, okay? So here, and you see that in the genealogy of Jesus. Remember, is it Luke, I think, that goes back, back, son of God, Adam, the son of God, okay? Now, this is not Mormon, you know, God, you know, God didn't have a body and, and that whole kind of thing, but this image reflection is there. Uh, Genesis 9, 6, and then we'll move on from there. Uh, Genesis 9, 6, this comes up again uh, when uh, God, after the flood, says this, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And then he has almost the same thing he said to Adam and Eve, a restart, and you be fruitful, multiply, team on the earth, and multiply in it. Again, this is a aside. There's plenty of room on the earth. This idea of overpopulation is just ludicrous. There's plenty of room up at Hudson Bay, but nobody wants to take dominion over it, okay? Except the polar bears, which there are more polar bears now than there were 100 years ago in spite of the <coughs> ice melting or whatever. They're, they're actually coming into town like the black bears in California and bothering people because, you know, there's too many of them, okay? So, okay. 
So man is made in the image of God. All this theme runs through uh, the Old Testament. Now, interestingly, D, elsewhere, this word salam, interestingly, is used for what? Excuse me? No, this, uh, the Hebrew there, salam, the Hebrew root there, D on the first page, uh, is used in the Hebrew text to reference idols. So here I have an interesting connection linguistically, okay? Uh, so man is the what? Image or reflection of God. What's an idol? An idol is a reflection of, think about this, of what? Yeah. A created thing, okay? And you see that in Romans 1. They exchange the glory of what? The creator God for something in creation. And then it gets really ugly. Creepy, crawly things, okay? The one I always like is worshiping dung beetles, okay? Now, that's an interesting one. I I don't know whoever got up one day and said, whoa, I'm going to worship a dung beetle. But that's kind of an interesting concept, okay? And then you've got Numbers uh, 33, 1 Samuel, all these references where it's used that way. An idol is the image of the false god, right? Uh, and if you ask an idolater, it's, it's a, again, not to be nasty with them, the same thing like Roman Catholicism. Well, we're really not worshiping, you know, the image of the saint. It's the representation of the person, okay? And it's that same thing. The idol represents the false god. And it's interesting, where did that false god came from? Somewhere inside the person who's looking out at creation and putting it together and saying, okay, that's, that's going to be my God. Okay? And a psalm, usage with men, Psalm 39.6, where it means a shadow, Psalm 73.20, <clears throat> where there's almost a play on word. <clears throat> now, Demuth is used elsewhere as likeness, Second Kings 16.10. Ahaz sends a likeness of the altar. Remember that one? Talk about sinful. Okay? He defeats these people. The usual thing is, if they defeat you, you adopt their God. He defeats them, goes up and sees this altar, and goes, Oh, that's a really cool altar. So he sends down a model, and he says to them, Make a model of this and put that the real altar over to the side. Okay, So it's used that way. Second Chronicles, that's a typo there, two Chronicles. So, um, likeness of gourds, remember on the side of the, of the brass sea where the priests would wash? So you have a... a a likeness of a gourd. It's used in the Isaiah 13:4, a noise like a great multitude. Isaiah 40:18, to whose likeness will you make God? See, there's the connection, almost a play. Okay, right. okay. What are, you, what are you going to make look like me? Huh? Come on. I mean, God's saying I'm invisible. I'm, you know, you're, you're going to make an image. What in creation could you possibly come up that would really reflect and represent me? It's a violation of the second commandment. Ezekiel, all these other passages like certain creatures. So you can see the the usage of it and you can study that later. Now here's the key concept. I'm going to walk away from the Old Testament. Excuse me. Turn over to Psalm 115. Now we're going to tie this all together. I think hopefully you're beginning to see it. And this is where the practical implications for counseling discipleship come in. Psalm 115, 
not to us, O Jehovah, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I'm reading the ESV. Why should the nations say, where is their God? <clears throat> Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now here, their idols are what? <clears throat> Silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. Can you see just piling it up and piling it up and piling it up? And they do not make a sound in their throat. Now here's the punchline. You want to close that door? Just uh, I don't think we'll be too too uh, <clears throat> warm, but uh, I'm sure I'm louder than he is. But uh, we're hearing each other. <clears throat> Now, here's the punchline. Those who make them what? Become like them. Now, that is a profound truth. Whatever a person serves and worships, you'll become like it. That's the ironic reversal. Okay? Here is something that you make, and yet you become like it. See, that's the key concept that I want you to go away. And of course, it says, Oh, Israel, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and shield. Repeated, repeated, repeated to get the thing. You better trust in what? The Creator, Sustainer, Redeemer, and not the work of of your imagination or hands. Yahweh has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear Yahweh, both small and great. May Yahweh give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. The heavens are Yahweh's heavens, but the earth has been given to the children of man. The dead do not praise Yahweh, nor do any who go down into silence, but we will bless Yahweh, from this time forth and forever, praise or hallelujah. Okay, that's what it is in the Hebrew. Now, just one more. It's not in your notes, but uh, just to pound this in. Chapter 44 of Isaiah. Isaiah 44, 9 through 20. And then we'll move on to the New Testament. All who fashion idols are nothing. Now, it's interesting. That word in Hebrew is vanity, emptiness, which is what? Is another one of the words that's used for idols. So, your idols are nothing, a mere breath. They don't last, and if you, you become like them. Okay? Uh, their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame. The craftsmen are only human. Uh, let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. So the picture is, 
Here's the dumb idols. Here's the guys that make them. And they're all standing in what? Court. And who's the judge? Jehovah God. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom, okay? And uh, even these days in our culture, it's a solemn thing. If you mess with a judge, I found out, you know, they remind you that they're the judge, okay? <clears throat> the ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers, works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water as faint. Now, see, here's the contrast. Here's the inanimate object being made by what? A human being who gets what? Hungry, tired, and faint. I mean, the irony drips off of this. Any preachers here? Okay, if you can't preach this, wrap it up. This preaches itself, okay? Okay, here he says, the, the carpenter stretches out a line. He marks it out with a pencil. <clears throat> he shapes it with planes. He marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. Now, here, he takes part of it and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Can't you see the irony? Okay? He cuts a tree down. He's cooking his meal. He's warming himself. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. This is one of the great duh pastors of Scripture. <laughs> duh. Don't you get it? Okay. He prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. Now, if that isn't dumb, 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 but that's it. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. God is blinding them and hardening them. No one considers, nor is there knowledge, the sermon to say, half of it I burned in the fire, and I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Now, isn't that a description of you and me apart from Christ and your counsel leads? Again, another freebie. No repentance, no faith. <clears throat> if a person can't see that they have a lie in their right hand, they're certainly not going to get rid of that and embrace Jesus Christ. <clears throat> and you tell me man has a free will. Sure it's free, but it's a tie to what? A dead, deluded heart. And that free will will never embrace Jesus Christ. So you can give the most eloquent sermon or the most eloquent counseling and people will not go anywhere but to hell except by the grace of God. So it may not look spectacular. You know, we're not raising the dead and he 
making people's arms grow. But this is supernatural stuff. <laughs> See, but, but all this is the image of God. What you make, you become like, and you become a slave to the idol instead of a slave to the living God who alone can free you. Okay, New Testament. Much the same. Man is the image of God in the New Testament. Now, there's the icon or iconos, the uh, genitive um, image, likeness, or form appearance. Remember Matthew 22 and Mark 12, Luke 20. Uh, Jesus gets in the controversy. He says, bring me a coin. Whose likeness is on the coin? Caesar. Okay, great. Give to Caesar what's due to Caesar. Give to God what's God. Again, almost a play on there's an image of Caesar. It's not really Caesar, but, it, you know, and, and so give to God, God. Image, Romans 1, 23. They exchange the glory of God for images, the plural, of created things. Romans 8, 29. God predestines us to be what? Conform to the image of us. See, now here's again. Okay? Uh, just to use the whiteboard because you worked so hard to clean it. Okay? 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 You are in the likeness of what? The first Adam, right? And now you have to become in the likeness of the second Adam. Okay? And who picks that up? Certainly Paul, right? And, and the rest of the Romans, Romans 5, the two Adams, and then 1 Corinthians when he's talking about the resurrection. You've been made in the likeness of the earthly first Adam. Now... You've been made, remade in the likeness of the second Adam, the man from heaven. Okay? So, well, this is how Paul uses the image and glory of God, speaking about men and women, 1 Corinthians 11. You can, you can follow these out. 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we were in the image of the earthly man, so the image of the man from heaven. And there's other usages there you can go down that I don't need to, to belabor those. Let's talk. Homoosin. Uh, likeness or resemblance, uh, used once in James 3.9. With the tongue we curse men who are what? Made in the likeness of God. That's the Greek word there. Okay. So when you curse your brother, you idiot, you dumbbell, you fool, Matthew 5, see, what are you doing? You're well, we would say you're basing on God's image. Mm-hmm. Say, yeah, but they're a pretty sinful image. It's true, okay. <laughs> but, but they're the image of God. Okay? So it's used. Uh, homos, uh, adverb, likewise, so or in a similar way. You got that Matthew 22, etc. But important, uh, John 5, 19, 6, 11, 21, 13. Jesus says what? In the same way, Whatever I see the Father doing, I do similarly. Okay? So that's why she says to Philip, Philip, hello, Philip. What you, have I been with you these three years and you, you, know, you, don't, you don't get it? If you've seen me, you've what? Seen the Father because all I'm doing is what the Father does. And elsewhere in John, he says, the words I speak. I'm just telling you the words that I heard from my father. Okay? So uh, that's another usage. Again, that's the adverbial usage. Then D, uh, homoios, uh, of the same nature 
similar or like. And all this is just to show you that this runs through the New Testament. Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like. You know those. Maybe you hated your SATs. A is to B and C is to D. Okay, well, it's right there. Uh, Matthew 22:39. The first great commandment and what? The second is similar or like it. Okay? Uh, John... Uh, nine nine, remember that the blind man. That uh, this this isn't him. He's like him, you know. But but this can't be him. Okay, all those usages. First uh, John three two, when he appears, Jesus, we shall what? Be like him because we will what? See him as he. We'll see him face to face, not through a glass darkly. We will be transformed into his image, and then, of course. I think from other passages, we know that happens when you die. You know, I'll look like Jesus, you know, in terms of morally, because my spirit will be <laughs> justified and made perfect. Okay, homoites, likeness, similarity, agreement, again, just one or two more. Hebrews uh, 4.15, Christ is tempted in every way as we are. Uh, 7.15, another priest like, okay, the other priest. Homo oil. Uh, to make like or compare the verb form, Matthew 6, 8, do not be like, become like the pagans, Hebrews 2, 17. Jesus, what? Had to be made like us so that he could suffer and die in our place. And the last one again, likeness, image, or copy, Romans 1, 23. Exchange the glory of God for the likeness, Romans 5, 14. Like Adam, who was the pattern of the one to come. Philippians 2, 7, which we heard last night, take the nature of a servant in the likeness of human flesh. Uh, Romans 8, 3, God sent the Son, interestingly, what? In the likeness of sinful flesh. Not sinful, but when you look at Jesus' body, you couldn't tell anything different between his and, and our bodies that degenerate. Very interesting. His body was not like Adam before the fall in the garden. It, it was like you and me, okay? New key concept, okay? Let's turn over to, if I, if I can say this is the parallel passage to Psalm 115, and it's real well known uh, Rome, uh, over in Matthew 6. Pick it up in 19. <clears throat> we'll give the whole context. It's about worry, okay? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth or moss and rust, where thieves break in and steal. This is almost like the, the reverse of the idolatry thing, right? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay. That's the concept, okay? So, again, we're coming to the conclusion. What makes you, you? Sure, there's physical issues, your genetic and everything else, but what really makes you you? Your heart. Okay, Here, here's the ways. What drives man? Heart, right? He's heart-driven, okay? What drives the heart? Treasures. Treasures, okay? It's real simple here, okay? In other words, like iron filings drawn to a magnet, whatever your treasure is, 
either God or mammon. Your kids, your grandkids, your career, whatever, okay? Heart is treasure-driven, okay? That's why uh, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All this other stuff will be added to you. Don't worry, okay? All, all the, you know, there's great, you know, brilliant preaching here, brilliant teaching, you know, and sarcastic, I think, tongue-in-cheek humor. If you can't even add a cubit to your stature or extend your life, why are you worrying? You could actually shorten your life, humanly speaking, right? That you can do, but you can't lengthen your life, okay? Oh, and by the way, don't worry about tomorrow. Why? Tomorrow will worry about itself. And then he really gives the point. Why? Because each day has enough trouble for today. So don't waste your capital for tomorrow that might not come. Okay? So in all of this, is, it's all expansion of what? What's your treasure? Or if we could put it in modern terms, not what's in your wallet, what's in your heart. See? There's the great infomercial. You know? What's in your heart? Now, I think, we'll come back to this, you can already begin to see what are the practical implications for this for counseling. Okay, to go back uh, in the old days, Bobby Dylan. <clears throat> gotta be, gotta serve somebody. Maybe the devil or maybe the Lord. Gotta serve somebody. I'm sorry, my voice isn't bad enough to be, it's bad, but it's not bad enough to be Bob Dylan's, okay? But that song was brilliant in terms of you got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but the bottom line is man is a servant. You see? Man is made not only as an image bearer of God as definition, but is made what? In a covenantal relationship with the God that he serves. You are married to your God or to your treasure. So you, the bells and whistles should be going off. It go up. Oh, there you go. Now you might say, "I've been saying this all along." Maybe in different <laughs> terms, but you see, this is the point. Old Testament paradigm, Psalm one fifteen: What you make, you become like. What you serve controls you. And in that, you have a, a summation of who man is, and what the keys are, you know, to counseling. Now, just a few. Uh, you have to do this because we're doing grad work. Uh, today, this is the D-Min course, at least the, top, the lecture from it. Uh, historical positions. Now, see, uh, here's where theology actually comes out. How do uh, Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, no offense intended, Lutherans or other, how do, Arminians, how do people, you know, define the image of God? Mormons basically say, well, it's a physical image, right? Right? What, what God, uh, what man is, God once was. And what God is, one man may one day be. So God the Father and Son and Spirit all have, you know, bodies. Okay? And so they, that, that you can see where they take the image of God. Okay? Historically, Eastern Orthodox trichotomy. 
Okay. Uh, so, what is man? Okay. Getting even more technical. What comprises you? Okay. We've got cells. You know, on the physical level, you got all that. Your DNA. Okay. So, uh, so we sort of know something about that. But what, what about your soul? Uh, is there a soul and a spirit and a body, or is there really just immaterial and material, you know, in a duplex? That becomes very significant. It doesn't have to be that. There's people in the biblical counseling movement that don't hold the trichotomy. But see, the, the Eastern Orthodox really were influenced by Greek philosophy. And I'm going to try to make the case Greek philosophy has influenced everything in Western culture, you know, Roman Catholic, you know, everybody else, okay? Uh, it, old Rosemead brochure, they don't do this anymore. They used to have this on one of the early ones. Anyone know what Rosemead is? You know, Graduate School of Theology up in Biola? This was actually a brochure that they had. But, huh? It's, well, it's more than a target, right? <laughs> well, it's a target for my comments, I guess, right? Okay, this is the body. This is the soul. And this is the spirit, okay? Now, and, and they did this. Now, maybe they're, they're probably a little more sophisticated now, but who gets the body? Who gets to work on the body? Doctor. Right, yeah, the MD, the medical doctor, okay? So that's the one that you go for body problems. Soul, mm, no, you're jumping the gun. I'll, I'll give you that pastor gets the spirit. Who gets the soul? Psychologists. See? Okay? Because they're separate spheres and they work differently. Okay? See, now again, Augustine held to this as good as he was, but you know why? Well, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so man must be a, a trinity. You know, you know, makes sense, but it's wrong. But, I, but, but see, that if you have a trichotomous position, now again, there's people in the biblical counseling movement that don't. Okay? Uh, uh, but uh, the bottom line is, I think that's a wrong view, okay? Uh, as we go back to the Genesis account, God formed Adam and Eve, Adam out of the ground, right? Forms them, you know, and then what? Breathes into them the breath of life, okay? Uh, so, so there's corporeal, physical, and non-corporeal, okay? And uh, when someone dies, what happens to the spirit? It goes back to God. Okay, so it said, you know, in Hebrews, the spirits of justified men, they perfect. We know that, can you think without your body? Some of us have a hard time thinking with our body, <laughs> right? Okay. But yeah, to be absent from the body is to be reborn. We don't believe in soul sleep. It's not a biblical concept. So... The point is the mind or thinking is part of the heart, the, the inner man, and that continues after death. Okay? And, and so uh, I think that's really, man is a unit. Really, you don't want to divide them up. But within that, there's material and non-material. That's, see, in the image of God uh, and the definition of man. So Eastern Orthodox, okay? Uh, uh, Roman Catholic, man has natural endowments. This is complicated. And again, Greek philosophy, Aristotelianism, affects Roman Catholicism. Yeah. Uh, so that here's the view, Roman Catholic. Man has natural endowments, physical and spiritual. 
but the physical is lower than the mental or spiritual. And so they came up with this idea. Man gets a special gift called uh, justestia to what? Keep them in balance. Because you see, your lower physical stuff really is sort of eats up the spiritual. And to keep those in balance, to make sure that your physical appetites, sexual and otherwise, don't eat you up, you've got that. Okay? This lower aspect of man uh, pulls towards sin, even though it's not sin in of itself. See, it's really a weird view. It's a, it's a Greek view. See, again, the Greek Gnostics believed the body was evil. Why do you think Paul pounds away in 1 Corinthians 15? Why does he say in he, you know, the writer of Hebrews, he became what? Because the reality is this. The body is redeemable. It's not chopped liver. You know, the body will be resurrected. And in fact, most of us, I think, will have a defective view of dying. We can't wait to get to heaven. I hope you can't wait to get to the new heavens and new earth. Because Paul says, being in heaven is cool, it's wonderful, but you're running around naked. Not physically, but you, know, you, don't, you're not, you don't have your body. And so the whole point is, the full adoption of the children of God, Romans 8, comes what? At the resurrection of the body. Okay? So, so it's those two components, okay? So what do the Roman Catholics say? Well, we've got uh, this draws concupiscence. And so we have to have an extra supernatural gift. So, so instead of going with a simple image of God, we got what? You got UST to keep the, the two in balance, and we've got this extra don uh, supernatural gift that keeps me from falling into sin. You see, that implies that God made man imperfect. And it implies that sin, and this comes into counseling, is not so much a moral, ethical issue, it's really almost a physical, you know, being issue. Okay? So we need supernatural gifts, okay, just not to sin. Okay, so uh, that's the image of God. And thus man had no original righteousness, but he wasn't sin. He was kind of a neutral. <laughs> these two elements kind of fighting out, and God gives these extra things in there. Talk about a complex, weird view of the image of God. The Lutheran view, the image, and this is right to an extent, the image is restricted to true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. So at least classic Lutheran theology teaches man's lost the image of God. But you see what the implication of that is. If I've lost the image of God, I'm no longer a human being. Why would I be held accountable for sin? Okay? The Arminian view is the image of God consists merely in man's dominion over the creation or free will. See? And again, free will becomes the whole big thing in Arminian theology. It's the kingpin. It, it trumps God's sovereignty and everything else because it's a man-centered theology. Now, the exegetically, theologically sound view, the more Reformed or Calvinistic view, true knowledge and righteousness, holiness, yes, but hints of something more. So in other words, Murray uh, was a great theologian, but uh, he basically said, look, we'll talk about this. There's the image of God in the broader and narrower sense. Man never ceases to be man. So even when you create an idol and you become like that idol, you're still a human being. You're not an angel. You're not a snail darter. You're a human being that's held accountable. 
Okay? And, uh, and, and, and the narrower view is, well, we don't reflect God's holiness, righteousness, and truth now. So both of those aspects, I think, will help. Jay Adams talks about the material or spiritual or moral or social aspects of man reflecting that. You can talk about that. I think it's helpful. Now, now here's what I hope is a contribution. You may or may not think it's helpful. Uh, personally, we're people because God is a person. We have a physical body because God's made us that. He doesn't have a body. But he who has the ear, has he, he who made the ear, will he not hear? So again, God doesn't have an ear, but our physical capacities give us the ability to live God. Spiritually or covenantally, moral, social, all those aspects. Here's the three things that I think might help you in counseling. Okay. And this goes back to Old and New Testament. When God saves us, and when he puts people together to start worshiping, in the Old Covenant, before Moses came along, okay, and I won't get into the controversy, when did the church start? Okay, When did a worshiping body start? Okay, um, Where was worship before Sinai? In home. Exactly. And Abraham was both what? He was all three. He was a prophet, a priest, and a king. Then when Moses came along, they were separated, and in Christ they're back united. Okay? In fact, I think prophet, priest, and king is not just some nice Puritan theology to sort of sum up things. It really captures who man is. Man is what? A prophet. Because the rest of creation that can't think, we need to preach the word, and to people that are rebels, we need to speak the word of God. In fact, Abraham, remember what he said? You better, you better go ask Abraham to pray for you because he's my prophet. You know, Chris, if I was him, i said, well, why was your prophet, you know, giving me his wife? Okay, so not a very good prophet, okay? So he had that. But he also was a priest, wasn't he? Because the family had worship in terms of the altars. You see that all through the patriarchal period. Wherever they went and God did something, they built an altar. But then Israel comes along centralized worship. You can't just, you can worship in the synagogue, but you had to come to the temple. New covenant, no temple anymore. Why? Because Christ is the temple, and you and I are little stones being built into the temple uh, for the Holy Spirit. But priestly, and then kingly. So, I, I just to alliterate this, it works in English, it doesn't work in, you know, Korean or other languages or whatever, but, you know, work, worship, and witnessing. And that can be helpful to you. How, how does the image of God, Christ has to restore us to what? To speak the word of God, understand it, to worship properly, and to uh, work. So, so, again, we'll end this up and we can ask questions. The image of God makes man unique because we are prophets. No one else is. We are priests. Nothing else in creation really is. And we are kings. Okay? So the Protestant Reformation made clear. Now, again, this is not to say there's no ordained offices. So there's male-female distinction. There's ordained, non-ordained. But everyone, the Protestant Reformation got right. Everyone's a prophet, priest, and king. Everybody has to take the word of God and tell it to other people. We have to worship 
We have to witness and we have to work. Okay? And that's a summation of how we play out the image of God. Uh, the created truth impact uh, counseling and practice. Again, helpful reading, More Than Redemption by Adams, these pages, Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, and Murray's Collected Writings, uh, writings for this. Now, here's some questions, okay? Uh, I feel like Bob Kellerman now, probing question, okay? How does one's view of the image affects one's counseling theory? Uh, pick on a uh, heretic that's not here, hopefully, but um, if you're, you are this, hopefully you'll get converted and change, okay? United Pentecostal, non-Trinitarian, okay? What, what's their view? <clears throat> Sin is demon possession. So we have an exorcism where the demons are cast out and you become saved. Okay? And then you live a perfect life until what? You fall from grace, you're repossessed, See, see, that's a counseling theory. It's wrong, but what is it? It's okay, all or nothing. And so the, the, the paradigm is the image, you're reflecting the demons or God, that's correct, but the method is I have to cast out the demons so that you can be filled with the spirit, etc. See, so your, your counseling theory comes out of your view of the image, okay? Uh, so, how does one's view of the image affect one's counseling practice? What's the most important thing to you in the world? Is it really Jesus Christ? Is it really the Father? Is it really the Holy Spirit? Or is it something else or someone else? How might the various views of the image influence one's counseling? And why is this exegetical position helpful compared to other views? Now, if this is correct, and I'll be talking about, in a different aspect, outer man, inner man, in the next uh, seminar I'll give on balance. I'm convinced that one of the things that's true of me and every other believer, that this side of heaven, we get out of whack and out of balance. Sometimes we emphasize the inner man to the exclusion of the outer man. I see people are so concerned properly with getting to person or the idols of the heart, they never give outward assignments other than reading the Bible. <coughs> Well, you got to do something. And uh, people are accused, well, you always give them do, 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 do. You don't have any contemplation of Christ. So we'll talk about that, Philippians 3. But here it is, work, worship, and witness. Is that balanced? You know, uh, Some people, all they want to do is worship. There's nothing wrong with worship. But guess what? You can't become a monastic. Yeah. We, we figured that out for us from Reformation. It's not, you can't go. I've become a monastic. I have to admit that. I'm a, an electronic monastic. Yeah. I will not do email except for information. You want to talk to me, get on the phone, face-to-face, -face, maybe Skype, but, you know, it's got to be face-to-face, -face, okay? Uh, but you can't become a monastic and get out of the world. Yeah, you, can't, you can't worship all the time. You have to work. You have to witness. Okay? Other, people who, other people want to witness all the time. I find people like that. They get converted, and they're in a church. Go, gotta go, gotta save souls. Gotta go save souls. Gotta go save souls. They don't know anything about holiness, okay? And so, consequently, pastors and the people know they get picked off, and nobody knows what to do with them because they had no understanding of progressive sanctification. So, all all this is important. Okay? Let me throw it open here before uh, we stop for lunch. Yes. Um, is it, would it be profitable to throw in this idea of headship as far as the image of Godness? You know, God is the head of Christ, Christ is a man. 
and so on. Because I'm thinking about <clears throat> this concept of king dominion work. It's, it's going to be slightly different, right, for men and women. And women. So if you're sure. It's going to be slightly different for ordained and non-ordained. It's going to be different for adults and children. So there are differences that this doesn't obliterate, but everyone participates, I think, in these things. I don't know if I'm helping or I'm hindering yeah, the I'm question. Yeah, I'm just trying to run with the concept. Like, when I'm talking to men, in our role as fathers and husbands, you know, the prophet, priest, king thing works really good. Right. Because we're, that's sort of a part of our calling, is being right. leaders and protectors and right. kings. Right, But when you're talking to women... I think, I think it's different, but it's still the same in the sense that, remember, in the original man as man, man and woman, was called to have dominion. So the bottom line is, she's a queen. If you want to put it in military terms, he's the five-star general, she's the four-star general, and the kids are buck privates. Okay? And same thing in a congregation. The pastor, elders, you know, lead, but the other people are not chump change. And if you get a top-heavy, uh, it doesn't work. Because the bottom line is you can't have five-star generals and everybody, you know, trying to do in CENTCOM. Who's going to go out and shoot the enemy? Somebody has to actually go out and, you know, and do the battle. So, yeah, but implication-wise, she's a queen, but she doesn't supersede him. In the military context, everybody knows that the CO, the skipper, is the boss. But the XO is what makes the ship run. And you're a dumb CO if you don't listen to the EXO, because the EXO is what makes the unit work. So it's the, see, that goes back, <clears throat> it's another topic for another time, but Trinitarian. See, we all agree that the three persons of the Trinity are co-equal, no difference between them. But in eternity and in salvation, the Son does submit to the Father and the Spirit to the Father and Son in a cooperation. And part of the problem across the world with, with uh, the feminist movement, homosexuality, all these are different things. As Peter Jones, whose Truth Exchange is here, if you don't know that, you ought to look it up on Truth Exchange, all lowercase is little letter X. Uh, he is uh, fighting monism, <clears throat> where all created distinctions are gone. That's Hindu Easternism, okay? No difference between the Father, Son, and Spirit. No difference between male and female. No difference between parents and children. Uh, so in the created structure, there's equality and yet, you know, hierarchy. Today, the idea is, dude, if you claim to be my boss, I'm not equal with you. Because it's all about power today <clears throat> in the postmodern world. Postmodern world is really uh, Western culture going to hell in an Eastern handbasket. <clears throat> <clears throat> That's what it really is. And uh, so again, but see, as Keller was saying, I have to serve you. I've got to be washing your feet. Otherwise, you will not appreciate my leadership. See, it's easy to submit, if you're a wife, it's easy to submit to a husband that acts like Christ. It's easy to love a wife, you know, that responds properly. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's both hierarchy and equality in that kind of balance. And uh, and when we destroy that, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay, it's time to go. If you have questions, I'll stick around and talk with you. But God bless you. Copyright 2013, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free audios can be found on our website, 
at www.ibcd.org.